everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Josh Adams. Soon to have goats. <laughs> Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood. Tempted to get goats. And we have a special guest this week, and that's Tiago Duarte. Yeah, exactly. Hi, guys. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick for the folks who don't know who you are? Yeah, I mean, I'm a software engineer by heart, so that's, uh, that's what I started. Um, that was my, my, my official profession, but then I, I opened up a company called Collective in Portugal, and we do software development, and at the moment I'm doing a transition, the sad transition from a software developer, uh, more to a CEO and, and more team manager, um, and that's my current status. And uh, we betted on, on Elixir since the beginning, so two years ago. And so we are just exploring uh, Elixir right now and having fun with it. And uh, that's basically my status at the moment. Nice. I know a little bit about making that transition from developer to CEO. So Yeah, it's a bit of a sad path. I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure if I want to do that fully, like tr fully transition to that, or if I just uh, want to code. Because I, I like coding, it's really fun and, and and learning new things every day. And I basically I feel that I can talk better with a computer than with a person. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's just that I'm in the middle of transition or something like that. But uh, that's my 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 feeling at the moment. Gotcha. Well, uh, we brought you on today to talk a bit about adopting Elixir, and um, you actually recommended a book adopting elixir is, is this something that you wrote no this is a book actually from um, oh this is the ben marks and bruce tate book. yeah exactly it's it's quite new uh but it i, I bought it as soon as it got out and i it's, it's really nice for someone to have a, an overview about everything how to sell elixir what is it good at the problems you might have there is like stories about uh, companies who adopted the problems they had also. And uh, I thought it was a great book to, to share. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So can you tell us a little bit about your company, Collective, and what it is that you, uh, what kind of problems that you're solving, just so people can have a little frame of mind of, of kind of where you're applying Elixir? Yeah, sure. I mean, we... We are quite new, I mean, newer than Elixir. Uh, so officially we are two years old, uh, something like that. But it all started when I was in Switzerland uh, working as a freelancer. And then I started getting more, more and more work uh, and so on. So I decided to open up a company in Portugal because that's where I'm from. That's where my connections are. 
And I think in, nowadays in software development, the hardest part is to get good people. And because I still have lots of friends, lots of connection, the faculty, I thought it was a good place to be in. And I opened up here and then I moved from Switzerland here and I still kept the, the customers from there. And in the beginning, I mean, it was a, an open plate, right? An empty plate. I had nothing in there. So we, we could make the decisions we wanted. We could risk it all. We had uh, no, um, how do you say, no technical. It's not technical debt, but we had no technical uh, history. I mean, everything, our GitHub was empty, basically. So, And by the same time, I found out Elixir, a friend of mine, taught, uh, talked with me about that. I tried a few talks, I read it, and I really got hooked into it. I, I was uh, doing POC, uh, POC after another. Everything was so nice and easy, like the developer happiness they praised was really there and then um, my first hire was was David which was also in the show he was a back-end developer in Java and he worked on uh, on um, obviously on betting um, website uh, they had a huge load so he was he was used to get this um, huge um, loads of users uh, it could not fail I mean when you put up a bet it it has to be there, your money can't just disappear. So it has to be resilient. So I said, okay, he's the right guy to test this thing because he knows how, how the production system should handle. And he loved it. I mean, he, since he started with us, he basically abandoned Java and PHP and whatever, and he's really, really happy with it. And that's how it, it all came together. But funny enough, um, was in 2013, a friend of mine, I was interviewing him for the company I was, and he talked about, told me about Erlang. And it was really funny. I mean, the interview took, took us, I don't know, two or three hours, and, and half of it, we were speaking about Erlang. He was really happy. He was really sh trying to show me the supervision trees, OTP, and all these concepts. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a new language, something like that. I don't get him. I was not getting him. What was like this functional programming, immutability? I, Really, I just ignored. After a while, I just, he just spoke and I ignored him. And a few years later, we are betting on Elixir. And when I started reading OTP and all these things, that story came to my mind. I mean, the guy was telling me all that a few years ago and I just didn't pay attention. Even show me the website, the Learn You Some Erlang. It was every week now and then. It was like, okay, you have to go there. Try it, try it. And I never did. And it's like, that's one of the things I, I, I mostly regret in my programming life, is not giving it a shot. Um, otherwise, I could have started with like Elixir and Erlang way earlier than I am right now. And that's, that's the story why uh, we decided to, to, to do that at Collective. And in Collette, we do we focus mostly in software development. Um, but we pair up with a design company and with a... With, um, uh, security uh, company called Adamant and the design company Significa, we are under the same roof. So basically we are these three companies together, we can do any uh, digital product. So we have design, software development, security, but we also have clients which exclusively require us design or mobile apps or, or security. And we are quite quite flexible on that. It's, it's a bit hard to, to get your head around it, but we work we work quite well. And we work mostly with startups. So uh, usually a team that has an idea that has some initial funding and needs to someone to produce the product to even help them to raise more money and um, to do initial POCs. 
and we do we do all that. Uh, like our biggest client is Oopsie. They are from Hong Kong, and they are a, a food ordering platform. So basically, you can order food through your your smartphone, and then you pick it up. Uh, because in Hong Kong, it's so packed up with people that um, Uber and other like uh, food. I think it's food and I don't know the name. It's really hard because the cars, they can't just go and it's really expensive to have a car. So people just pick up, pick up the food. So that's, that's what we do in the back end there. It's, it's made in Elixir, everything from scratch and it has payment system. It has a ordering system, uh, invoicing and so on. And we are really, we were really, really fast with, uh, I don't know, in the back end we have one, two developer stops and we did all the features that basically Uber has. <laughs> with uh, a tenth of the, of the people probably and it's amazing and we never we have one time we had downtime in two years so it's we are really really happy with it and the downtime was really stupid and that's another story I, I probably will share later it was not related with elixir at all it was just the systems ran out of memory and that's that's the next i don't know if you want to if you want to talk already about that but uh that's a funny, a funny thing. Well, there was a lot in there. I'd love to, like, we can talk, tease out a few different topics in there. Um, yeah, so sorry, one, it took me so long. I get really deep when I, when I talk about this, like the whole story. That's cool. I just, when you're talking about like your first introduction uh, to Erlang and you're like, I, you know, like, I just don't get it. And I thought of Josh and how he had had a similar, like you, you've expressed that idea as well, Josh. Along with regrets 10 years later or so when I actually came to Elixir. Yeah. But it is, it is interesting. Like we've, we've talked about this before. It is interesting that um, the syntax really is important. If nothing else, it's for that first initial impression. Just like, how does this feel to me as a language? And I think Elixir has really nailed that. Um, and that, was, that is one of the, I don't know, it's a, you could say it's a criticism of Erlang just that the way it is expressed is very foreign. I view it as a criticism of us as humans because uh, definitely I now fall into the camp of, you know, when I see an Erlang related Hacker News post, I scroll to see how long it takes to get to the first one that says, oh, but the syntax. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because in the faculty, my first uh, programming or the programming language I learned in fact, it was Scheme. It's from MIT and it's purely functional. And, and I had it in the first year, like for a, a, semester, a semester, for six months. And then the faculty just abandoned altogether functional programming. We moved immediately to Java, to C a little bit, to C++, and then we moved to object-oriented programming. And we, don't, we didn't talk anymore about, about functional programming. We did Prolog, again, six months. And then they abandon. And nowadays, I don't get why. Why do they focus so much in OOP? And I mean, we have 12, no, 10, no, 10 semesters. And in 10 semesters, they only get like two uh, languages which, which are functional. I, I don't I, I honestly I, don't know. I strongly believe that it's because educational institutions have become means to push out factory workers to sit in chairs. Yeah, probably yes. Probably I mean Java Enterprise. That's the most most used language. I mean that's probably. that's kind of why Java was made. Yeah, and and that I don't get. And also it didn't help, of course, that even Scheme and and Prolog 
that had it was really weird the language the the wall even to read the code was weird and Erlang had the same I nowadays I look a little bit into Erlang and it's it's a bit hard and Elixir got everything like the the beauty of the beauty of, of the language it's it's really well written you can read it understand it quite quickly and still have the concepts of functional programming immutability and so on pattern matching um, Prolog had it but it was a, a nightmare it was a headache to work with that. We've had some discussions at work recently about, you know, we're, we're all like, so most of the companies using Java and then our smaller team is using Elixir and we have some legacy stuff as well. But what, what, I think I'm getting up all ready for a rant or something. <laughs> no, I just, it's, it's just funny because it feels like, you know, within different communities, it's like, yeah, well, most of the company uses this language or this feature, oh, yeah. this, you know. And, and we're, you know, our team's different in some way. And yep. anyway, I just think it's funny. You're, you're kind of the weirdos in the company. Yes, it, it is funny. Uh, but like one of the things that was, we were just talking about this recently and how um, we don't miss a lot of the OOP kind of, uh, I don't know, patterns. And, and part of that discussion was like, you know, when you first come to Elixir, like, you know, coming from Ruby or something else, I really leaned heavily on an integrated debugger. And, and then one of the other coworkers was saying how he, when, he, when he first came to Elixir, he didn't even miss a debugger because you don't need one. Like, you know, just doing some like inspects and things like let you know what's going on. But, and really it's like, it, it's true because when you're dealing with OOP, you're dealing with like, I'm passing this object and it's, being touched by all these different methods and functions that are being called and it's being modified and mutated but i don't see any of that is that like looking at the code i can't see that, that directly that that's what's happening so i need an integrated debugger to just show me what's happening to make it apparent and kind of expose the actual behavior of the program and, and like when you're dealing with a, a nicely designed functional programming approach like you just don't have that need as much there is yeah. like debugging tools uh, for Elixir and stuff, but I really don't use them. I, I guess my question there, because I'm, I'm still picking up Elixir. I still mostly live in Ruby world. Um, my, my question there is, is that because of functional language or is it more because of the purely mathematical aspects of functional language that force you to do things like immutability? And so, so it's more uh, a particular aspect of it as opposed to, um, I mean, I get what you're saying about OOP where I don't know if I'm passing this by reference or if it's making a copy, a local copy of it so that it can modify it without modifying global state or this or that or the other. I, I get why we have the, the buggers up there. But yeah, I'm wondering, is that more just a function of um, some of the features that we, we talk about when we talk about functional programming or is it the paradigm itself? In, in my experience, it is, it is sort of the, the paradigm itself. So like when I'm using a debugger, it's almost always because there's some state somewhere that I need to check out because it's not what I expected. And it's hard to get to that point. Um, and so like the, I, I don't use the REPL in Elixir nearly enough. But the other day I had a, had a bug because I wrote a bug and I was trying to figure it out. And I was just you know, consistently recompiling the module till I, till I worked it out. And the cycle took me all of you know, five minutes to go through 20 or 25 iterations before I finally figured out what I was doing wrong. And I didn't need a debugger. I just needed to, you know, I had, I printed out the terms and then I passed them in and you know, just copied and pasted the function after I made changes. Didn't make a test, didn't bother with it. It was very easy in the REPL and it's just not 
I mean, when I'm debugging something, it's not true that it's trivial to check it. Uh, usually it's because some, some state built up and, and, you know, that's just my experience. But aside from that, I don't find myself ever reaching for a debugger. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to answer correctly or if I got what, what, what Charles was, was saying, but from my experiences, uh, also I did the, from, I was doing um, iOS uh, development in the beginning and I did the, the transition from Objective-C to Swift and Swift is an attempt from Apple to go to functional programming. And with Swift, I stopped having many of the problems I had with Objective-C with the fact that uh, that you, you, you basically there is an object and many, many other objects can have a reference to that. So you never know who is touching it, who is changing it. And like this one thinks he has an object, let's say with the name ABC, but in the meanwhile, the other one already deleted that name or changed that name. And now this one still thinks he has the, an object which has a name ABC. And that's the problem with functional programming. This doesn't happen. I mean, the thing goes through a pipe, gets changed and gets, gets an output. If another, if another function has, uh, it's not even an object, that's the thing. I don't know what to call it. But he has this, let's call it an object, but it isn't. It's a copy of it. He knows he's the only one touching. It's the only one changing it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound a little bit funky, but it's like when you are single and you have a bank account, you know the money which is in. When you have a wife, both of them are touching the account, so you never know when you get <laughs> when you go bankrupt, right? <laughs> Concurrent spending, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> more or less, I guess the same. No, that that is there's there's a valid uh, example there. That's fun. Good luck debugging your finances. Yeah, then you never know who, who spend the money where and so on. Oh, I know who spends the money at my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's the who moved my cheese problem brought to programming. Yeah. It's that darn goat. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, in the beginning, it was not only like betting. That's the thing. Um, it's not always a, an, an happy path. I mean, we had also problems because uh, there were there was when we started in 2016, so I think I would say 16. I started coding in Elixir in 2015. There was no one to hire that you could just hire and you would just get into the company and start coding. So what we did was we could David uh, David basically converted to Elixir and we started onboarding slowly uh, the people and we started teaching them, giving them. Um, the way we do is we have usually pro bono projects, so projects where we don't make a profit, sometimes even make a loss, uh, like envir environmental projects, stuff like that, like we have right now going on. And we onboard the people, we give them, we give them this project, we give them time to learn and then apply this into a real project. But this has, uh, I mean, this has uh, some spendings. You need to spend money on the salaries of the people, which are basically going through, I don't know, half a year, three months, of just learning and not actually um, being uh, productive using the, the language. And that's the downside of Elixir. Um, I, I've been in touch with the faculty here in Porto and they are, they are already teaching Elixir. So I was really, really happy that they introduced, okay, it's just uh, again, six months in a, in, a, in a course that takes 30, <laughs> that you have one single uh, class which teaches you Elixir or at least, but at least you, the students already know what Elixir is. They, if they then are curious, they will go to it and learn more outside of the faculty. But that's a big downside for, for Elixir. 
Um, I would say that, yeah, sorry. Well, one of the things, it sounds like you've had a, a number of different times where you've been bringing people in and kind of introducing them to Elixir. And uh, what has that been like for people transitioning on your team, like transitioning from an object-oriented perspective to a functional programming? How has that gone for them? I mean, we have, so I have onboarded, uh, so right now we have, so if I would say four backend developers uh, full-time on Elixir and uh, they came from different backgrounds. So David came from Java. Um, we had people who just came out fresh off the faculty. So they basically had no professional experience and also uh, other mid-level people who were working yeah, mostly with Java. <laughs> That's the, the common thing around. I mean, transitioning to, to Elixir is, is kind of easy. Getting the language is easy. But what, what, I, what I feel is difficult is to get the functional programming. Uh, like after two or three months of using Elixir, some of, some of them I still feel that they, they think about objects and they, they, they think about references. Um, it's really, it's, it's a bit hard when, when you spend three, four, five years working in OOP and then do this, this switch to functional programming. It's the concepts themselves. I'm, I'm not to blame Elixir or any functional like JavaScript, for example. JavaScript can be both object-oriented because it has the prototypal inheritance and so on and objects. But it, if, if you use it the right way, it can also, be, uh, can also be functional. There is even the immutable framework that you put in that just doesn't allow you to use references. So it's, it's um, I would say that transi transitioning from OP to functional programming is harder than transitioning from Java or any other language to Elixir. Uh, it, it takes months and months of, of just coding and trying different things and get, getting your head around it. But I, what I also feel is that as soon as you go to functional programming, they don't want to go back uh, to, to the old. I, I'm not saying the old way because I'm, there is no silver bullet for everything. And functional programming surely doesn't fix uh, all the problems and creates new problems. And OP is still probably uh, a good match for, for different problems. But they are really, really happy um, with, with the functional programming. We are even trying to transition now, even Android. We also do Android development. And we moved from Java to, um, what is the new? Ah. I just kept forgetting. There is a um, Google is also transitioning to to something similar to Swift. Uh, I don't know the name right now. Uh, I've got like a blank in my brain. And we are also Kotlin. doing the transition from yeah Kotlin exactly. Sorry. So you can see the move. Like many companies are moving from OB, from Objective C to Swift, from Java to Kotlin, uh, from Ruby on Rails to to Elixir. And I feel this is a trend. I'm not sure if, if, if this is going to then backfire and people will get back again to OP later because it's like any trend. Everyone tries to go in there, but it doesn't fit every case. So the, the future for me is still, still unclear. So when you start making the transition, because we've talked a lot about, oh, well, when you, when you make this change, you're never going to go back. Or when you make this change, you find that these things are a whole lot nicer, even if there are other problems. But how do you start transitioning in the first place. I mean, um, I guess in smaller companies where it's just like, you know what, our next project's going to be Elixir Phoenix or Elixir and Nerves or, you know, whatever we're doing. Um, that's one thing. But in bigger companies, you know, where there's all this momentum behind something like Java or Ruby 
or something like that? How do you start moving in the direction of, hey, Elixir solves a lot of these problems better than our current solution does, so we're going to start adopting it. You still have all that legacy code to maintain. So, so how do you make that transition start to happen there? Yes, I mean, it's a good question. We, we started freshly, so for us it was, was easy. It was just, it was easy. I mean, we could have picked Java, we could have picked Ruby on Rails, whatever, uh, and we picked Elixir. Every project we have been doing for the past two years, we are doing it from scratch. So again, it's also easy. So I, from my personal experience, I, I can't answer that, but uh, I can guide you to the Adopting Elixir book. And there they state exactly that problem. So if you are a big company and you have a legacy code, what can you do? And what they suggest is that you, you, you start with a, with, a, with a small problem, a small, well-defined problem, and you try to fix that problem with Elixir. You try to communicate with the, your current systems because in the end we like to communicate. And then you see how it goes. I mean, maybe the team you like, maybe, maybe they don't. Uh, but from their experience, um, people usually like it and they keep, keep moving on to, um, to doing more and more things into Elixir. Uh, but they also recognize that it's for many, many companies, it's impossible to just move everything. It's like COBOL or it's like, I don't know, whatever. I mean, you can, it's really hard to migrate everything. We even have Objective-C code still. I mean, mm -hmm. Objective-C, Swift showed up five, four, five years ago. And we still have Objective-C and that, that's how it is. That's legacy. And I believe that in 10 years, we will still have Objective-C. We will still have uh, Java or whatever. Um, I don't believe that you can just switch. It's not like electricity that you just press the switch and you change. It's a step-by-step so -step process. That closely mirrors how, uh, how we introduced Elixir the first time. So we had a, a real-time websockety thing we needed to do and the rest of the app was written in, in Rails. And it was, uh, it was not, in my experience, it was not a particularly great idea to do what we were going to do in Ruby because we needed lots of concurrency. And so, yeah, we just had a single service that was Elixir and it literally never went down for its lifetime. And that was a really good first experience. And that, that, that's the thing. I mean, all the projects we, we have done so far, even the Hong Kong one, I believe it could have been done in Java, even PHP or Ruby on Rails. Um, I'm not the, the purest guy who just says, this is the perfect, that's, that's the right way of doing it. We do it, we believe it's the, the best one and we are betting on it, but we, we also believe it could have been done in any other language. So it sounds like a strategy that Josh was describing and, and we're, we're talking about here is you know, maybe small um, exploratory projects, like especially when you're saying, well, we have this problem and our current tooling does not have a ready, easy fix for this. And then it's like, well, maybe that's a good time to say, well, just for this small piece, let's, let's experiment and see if we can use some Elixir here. And I don't know, does that, and cause that's kind of how I've seen um, new language experimentation happen as well. Just like small pieces, basically, like with the microservice idea, if a microservice is small enough and it, it needs to be completely re rewritten, it can be rewritten in a small amount of time because it doesn't have a large surface area. So like you could start with a small project and say, okay, let's just try this out. If it doesn't work, it's not that expensive to throw it away as opposed to we're going to write our, we have like a 
a monolith that has been developed over five years of time. Let's rewrite it all, right? That might not be a very uh, smooth transition. Yeah, I mean, definitely not, especially because the people will dry out. I mean, if you pick something big, um, people will just just be tired and you will never go through with it 100% and you'll just abandon that. Uh, we try that. Um, I try that. Um, one of my current clients, we used Polymer and, and we are now moving to Vue.js and... <laughs> Some, some, I mean, we had the idea of moving everything from Polymer.js to Vue.js and in the middle of it, we just stopped. Okay, it's enough. Uh, because you don't, you don't get anything out there. Just migrating stuff. It's not fun. It's not, you're not producing anything new. So we started with concise or small problems and we, we started moving them from Polymer to Vue. And as soon as we get the opportunity to add a new feature to something small, we first migrate and then add feature, feature to it. And that's how we've been doing and it's working quite well. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So as you uh, made the transition to Elixir, did you have clients that also made the, the, the change or did you just turn over clients? No, I mean... When when we started with, with Collective, um, the clients we had, I was a freelancer and most of the clients I had was on the front-end side. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and the new clients we got, we already got the... So from, 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 the, from the get-go, I decided, okay, either we do it in Elixir or we don't do it. Because the problem is, if you start accepting problems in other languages, you will do them. And then you will just keep accepting work. And what we want to do here, we don't want to grow like insanely huge or we, we want to be right. small, concise and really good at what we do. That's why we even decided not to do design or web development. We rely on Significa, which they, are, they also have the same mindset. Small, they, they have really good people working with them. So we partner up, we are under the same roof and that's where we want to go. Because if... Yes, we could do like David, when, he, when, when I hired him, he could do Java, he could do PHP. And if he started accepting that, he will never focus on something. And we want to focus right. and be great. Of course, I mean, in 10 or 20 years, probably there is a new language and maybe we do the switch again, like Ruby though, for the past 10, 20, I don't know, 10, 15 years was like the, the, the go-to language or the go-to framework um, to build, to do web development. And nowadays, Elixir showed up and I think it's eating up a little bit of the community and I see lots of Ruby and Rails developers switching to Elixir and it's just a prediction but I believe that Elixir is basically gonna for all the new projects it's gonna replace Ruby on Rails 
for the old ones, of course, there's maintenance to do, new features to be done, but slowly we are going to move from there. The same way people move from PHP to Ruby on Rails. Uh, I think that was, was kind of... So one of the interesting discussions that you kind of mentioned is this idea of you're starting a new company, you have this kind of blank field, this uh, empty plate you were just saying. Um, and so what are the kinds of things when, you, when you're choosing a new language, either, either we're choosing a new language to, as something to, to build a project in, you know, it's not just like a weekend, like, oh, let me play around with Go or Rust or something. It's like, this is something I'm, I'm kind of committing to because it becomes part of that legacy code. What are some of the thoughts and the way you approach how you choose a new language and how you chose Elixir? I mean, firstly, we had to do with Pox. I mean, we started with smallpox. Uh, I also asked opinions from, 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 from different people with experience. Um, and there is, I mean, I, I was not 100% sure that the Elixir would, we would be able to build everything we wanted or we needed or the clients needed with Elixir. That's, that's a fact that just, I have to admit it, but I had to do the bet um, of, of, of going for it. I mean, we tried when we have like a new customer or a prospect or at least a prospective customer and he has some, some different idea that we never tried. First we do a POC just with that part to see if it is possible to be done with Elixir. Uh, and then we do it. Uh, so far, we had we had no 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 problems at all. It's if you see, we are moving from IPv4 to IPv6, right? There are many many way more devices connected with with the internet, and a household um, I don't know ten years ago had one computer connected to your router, maybe two, a cell phone. Nowadays, a family of four. I mean, the the kids they have cell phones. The parents they have cell phones. The kids have tablets or computers. The parents same thing. The fridges start to be connected for, to the internet. I don't know why, but they are. Uh, everything is connected. <laughs> to, so a household nowadays has probably, I don't know, 10 at least, and I'm being really conservative here. In the next 10 years, you will have 20 or 30. So the, the, the systems nowadays, they, they have to be, um, especially with IoT, they have to be constantly connected with, with the devices. And it's before we, we are moving from a REST APIs, which are just, okay, I ask you the page, you give me the page. And in five minutes, I ask you again, another page and give me another page. Nowadays, you are moving to more devices connected like 99% of the day to the server. So the servers have to handle lots of simultaneous connections. And the previous systems, they were built for the old way. So the old REST way, request, response, request, response. And also something I saw in Elixir is a system which is built to be fully connected uh, most part of the day with millions of connections at the same time. And even this affects everything, even design. That's what I've been uh, talking with the designers here is before they were building the pages, like, okay, you have a page, you press the save button, you go to another page and stuff like that. So always, but they always have, they now have to think that a page is just a mutation. You just start mutating stuff as you go. You click here, it changes there, and you never leave the page. You have this constant connection with the backend. The flow of information is, um, is constant. That's why we are moving from IPv4 to IPv6, from HTTP1 with a single connection to HTTP2, which basically keeps the connection alive, and you have 
um, a bidirectional uh, communication. Not only the page tells the server what to do, the server is now telling the page also what to do. And I saw that in Elixir uh, a few years ago. I was really amazed by the, the forward thinking. And if you think about Erlang 20 years ago, I think they were far ahead of their time. That is an interesting observation, just that uh, there's, you know, the change from the request response cycle to moving like with the IoT, that's more of a streaming information. And that is a, that is an interesting perspective, just like a lot of the existing um, web frameworks and everything are really all focused around like the REST request response. And, you know, it's, Phoenix still supports that, uh, but, you know, you do have WebSockets and you know, like with live view, we're talking about the gen servers on the back end pushing state changes to the front, the front end client. So yeah, that is a really interesting perspective. And I do think Elixir is really well positioned to, to solve some of those problems. Yeah, that, that was my, my idea too. Of course, it's only predictions. You never know where, where it's going to end up. Uh, and more and more, what I notice is I'm even we are even trying to push the designers and web developers to think this way. Just the, the, the old request response uh, way of doing things is changing. We can do better. Uh, and, and we are using more and more sockets and we are moving away from the, the controllers into, into sockets. When we talk about Phoenix, we use a lot of Phoenix, not only Elixir. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm not sure where we are going to be, but I, we are pushing more and more, and I hope that I build a, that we build some some project where we all use sockets. It's hard and 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 it's it's a big game, but we'll see what we what we can do in there. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us that story you kind of alluded to earlier, which was you've deployed this new Elixir system, and then you're having like system crashing, and you're like, oh crap this tool cannot do what we wanted it to do. Like, and it, I think it's a, why don't you go ahead and tell us that kind of story and that experience. And I think it's fun. Yeah, that, that was also, I mean, was the first time I was doubting about, about the, the properties that uh, Elixir came with, like this resilient system, this uh, not crash state because of it crashes, but in the supervisor just put up the, 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 the processes up again. So we had this, this project. The project consists of, I cannot reveal much of the details because of the NDA, but basically we, we grab data from multiple sources. So you have a project and we grab data uh, from, let's say, Facebook and from other pages. We aggregate this data and then we, we do analysis, analytics over this data when we grab it all together. And every X hours, we, we do this scraping. So we have, let's say, big amounts of data, because if every two hours we, we get out all this data from the different sources, then the, um, the client basically can go to the dashboard and we have to load all this data and, and, and do the calculations with it and output it. And after I would say two or three months of the system being live, it went down, just, just crashed. And we didn't know because there was, we use uh, apps. Uh, for 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 the crash reporting and for uh, for um, bug, not bug reporting but yeah crash reporting, but AppSignal had nothing. We went to the to the crash logs. They had barely nothing, and we started to blame Elixir. So why is this thing going down? It should heal itself. It should put, put itself up. So if a, 
uh, a gen server goes down, it should go up. And we spent quite a few hours because the, in the community, not many people had the problem of, of a system going down. So no one really looked into, into these kind of problems. There was not much information about debugging because it barely fails. Uh, and this was a big problem. And then we realized that that was not Elixir failing. We are using AWS and we were using an AWS machine configured, I think, with only one gigabyte of RAM. And we were exceeding that gigabyte of RAM. So AWS was just shutting down the service without, without, without giving us any, any notice. And the system, then the AWS machine would reboot, but would not reboot the, 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 the Phoenix app. And we found this out the hard way. I mean, we had, uh, I don't know, one hour downtime for the first time. And then we actually created an, an article uh, about to help people how to debug, how to analyze crash logs, how to analyze memory usage and so on. And to alert people that sometimes, especially using AWS, the, the machine can just go down without giving you any warning. So we were blaming Elixir or Erlang for something that it was not its fault. So, right, so far, we haven't found um, a problem that we could blame Elixir. We can blame the infrastructure, we can blame the developers mostly, but we haven't found a place where we could, okay, this is a language problem. Yeah, that is fun. Just, I, I've, I've been that uh, person who's made the mistake and I, I just wrote something wrong. And uh, when you start dealing with the clustered environment, I just, it, it ended up not recovering well. And that was my fault. That was my design problem. But uh, yeah, so I, I think it's great to, go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, so I have an interesting question for both of you then. So, okay, doing the uh, sort of five whys, getting to the root cause of the actual problem. Um, what would you say the root cause was? Was it you don't have enough observability or monitoring? Was it that code review doesn't have uh, sort of thoughtfulness around uh, memory usage? That seems like an unlikely place to fix it, honestly. Like uh, probably when people are reviewing code, that's not a thing they're going to do successfully 100% of the time. So what, what would be the proper fix that sort of systematically would avoid this problem for you, uh, for each of your problems? I mean, first, um, I mean, I don't know why, but uh, I was expecting it was to send me a warning before we <laughs> were actually shutting down a machine, but I didn't. Now we have alerts, but I was expecting it to have an alert. But we also, there was a problem with the way we were programming. We, we were abusing too much of Ecto. The problem was we were using Ecto preloads. And stupidly, we just said, okay, let's put a preload here. We need this data a week later. Okay, we need data from another table here. Let's just put a another act of preload and just kept adding and adding and adding until it just broke because we were loading every time you would go into a dashboard we would load i don't know 100 megabytes of data maybe more and that's insane uh, that that should not happen so it's also our fault but so, so but like so like a, a fix for that might be to have a policy of having like say use prometheus and alert manager and get an alert when memory goes over 80 percent usage just as an example i'm trying to figure out okay this yeah, is a problem and i've run into a similar problem and how can i distill it down into like a policy that avoids that problem in perpetuity i mean what i what i would do is if it would be great if in the unit tests and the integration tests that we have 
that it also analyzed the memory usage fit. And if there was, uh, I don't know, a spike or a difference between the last test, it would not allow your code to pass the same way as you have performance testing and we have functions where we say, okay, this function has to run under, I don't know, X seconds. And if that thing doesn't, doesn't so when you do another pull request and the function just spends the double of the time it spent before, the pull request cannot be merged. And maybe there would be a way of doing that with memory, memory usage. And maybe there would be a way of, of a pull request not being, not, not be allowed to be merged if you are spending um, more memory than the previous pull request or if the memory usage just goes over X megabytes, maybe. Just a wild idea that I had right now. Um, but of course, that, that would require the Elixir team to jump in. Um, in practical terms, we just added in AWS uh, alerts if the memory goes uh, over, uh, I think it's 75% of the capacity of the machine. And also we allowed auto-scaling, which we forgot. I mean, we, we were not allowing the machine to just move to the next tier so that it would uh, release a little bit more, more memory. So it was a new mistake that we made at the time and we will never make it again for sure. Yeah, so I, I think I think uh, it would be awesome. This probably exists somewhere, but uh, to have sort of a list of kind of table stakes monitoring slash observability alerts about a system because it it strikes me as like you're not going to solve that problem with with unit tests or with CI probably. Like yes, technically you could, but I've worked in a lot of teams and it's just not like nobody. Everybody's got to finish another feature or else the the product manager is going to yell at them. So it seems unlikely that they're actually going to spend time on like, well, this feature that's never caused us a problem, maybe spend another three hours on the story to make sure that it doesn't cause us a RAM problem in the future. That's probably not actually gonna happen in a team. Um, so it would be awesome if anyone knows of like, just a list of alerts that anybody running a production system ought to do. Uh, you know, definitely RAM gets above 75, 80% is, is one I'm aware of, uh, sort of. But, I haven't seen a succinct list of these things and I would, I would love to see it. And I'm sure it exists somewhere, at least a decent first pass. Yeah, I think I've seen a list like this, like a checklist of before deployment checks, uh, but I also can't recall it. <laughs> yeah. And some of those things like you were describing with these ecto preloads, some of those things you may not even see unless you're working with production data or production-like data that is, you know, sufficiently large and complex relationships that it's getting that, taking that much memory. So yeah, I think monitoring is, is probably one of the uh, first places to go. And so Josh, you'd asked about my experience too. So what ours was uh, with the project I was working on, um, I, we had a cluster, an Elixir cluster, and I was doing a gen server and it was supposed to be, and it was a, a globally, a globally unique name. And that worked great in my local testing of my cluster on like, like clustering on my machine. And the problem was, is it ended up being like, when, when you like deploy and you take down one server and then bring up another and then take down one of the other servers and bring it up, uh, it was, taking down the, the gen server and which was globally unique and it was correctly moving over to the next one. But when the last one went down, 
it didn't have like globally unique does not have a way of saying, oh, well, if one isn't there, I'm going to create one now. And so it just it was this situation where just that within the way it was being deployed, it had this problem and I could not figure out what was going on. So what I ended up doing is I knew it had something to do with just based on some of the error messages that a supervisor was killing something. And so I ended up finding uh, turning on SASL logging. Uh, for Elixir and Logger, and I'll just put a drop a note to that. It's Erlang, and then you can have Elixir um, convert these SASL error messages into a more Elixir-friendly way. Uh, but that ended up basically once I saw that, I knew exactly what was happening. It was just exposing the logging of the Gen server saying I received this message and I'm shutting down, and I just like okay, I know exactly what's going on. I can fix this but it was just basically getting that insight. And so SASL logging was the way I was able to get that with Elixir. Yeah, plus one for SASL. It's super helpful. By the way, what, what do you guys use for, uh, for logging and for uh, bug? I mean, not bug hunting, but like for bug reporting and, and so on. I mean, we have been using AppSignal uh, so far, but uh, have you guys tried like Prometheus, something like that? Yeah, I used, I used Sentry for, um, for a lot of stuff and uh, I'm, sort of doing Prometheus alert manager stuff now, although that's not, you know, that's more for the health of the system, not, uh, not logging or really error reporting. Um, but you know, Sentry, Sentry did okay. I still haven't found anything where I'm like definitely going to suggest this to other people in lieu of other things. Uh, so at a previous, uh, job, I, uh, it was a, the, one of the ops manager guy kind of set up a Splunk, um, server, which is, is, as Josh has pointed out, is not cheap. Uh, but that was uh, what we were using for logging, display, and searching. And I'm currently like uh, working on a Kubernetes uh, DevOps whole setup uh, for our, pr our our products that we're working on now. And with that, I'm experimenting with the Elasticsearch and Kibana and all of that. So we'll see how that goes. I can't say that yes, that is the blessed path. Uh, you know, I don't have enough. Uh, real world experience with it to say for sure so there's a uh, oh for logging uh, i found log dna to be a particularly nice thing as far as hosted tools go and then there's a a new prometheus or grafana alike called loki that aims yes. to be sort of a cloud native logging thing and i'm playing with it right now but haven't yet i can't give any recommendations i'm just kind of intrigued yes i've been looking at the prometheus loki as well I will say Splunk, though expensive, was uh, it was super valuable just in terms of this. I mean, it just stored everything and was really good at at searching everything. So it was very useful for uh, for sort of debugging things. But I kind of found that I relied on it more than I because I could use it after the fact to solve problems or to figure out what happened. Uh, after I kind of didn't have it anymore because I wasn't going to pay for it on the next project, I kind of just doing some somewhat smart logging found that actually I could solve those problems a lot cheaper by spending even a little bit of time thinking ahead of time. But it is nice not to have to think. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else we should jump on before we hit picks? All right. I will take silence as no. There's nothing else we need to talk about. Um, Josh, do you want to start us off with our picks then? I really, really do. Uh, so there's this, there's this thing, Dotsies. It's at dotsies.org. And it is a... It's a way of writing uh, sort of the alphabet 
in just dots. So five with, with five dots instead of letters and it's super duper neat. And the site itself is, is particularly cool. I mean, it's, this is not a highly valuable thing for you to do, but it's really fun if you like sort of mind bending because uh, the site works its way through teaching you to read English in not letters, but these sort of five dots. And uh, it's really, really intriguing to me the way they go through teaching you because you gradually are reading less, less English and more dots till at the end, hey, you understand the, the, this script. Anyway, it's really, really cool. If you want your brain to, to kind of expand a little bit, I think it's, you can do it in about 20 minutes and it's, it's neat. It's very terse. <laughs> Super duper terse. Awesome. Mark, what are your picks? So uh, this is a fun quote, you know, like kind of our discussion about object-oriented programming and everything. Uh, this is a quote that uh, a coworker at work shared, and I just pulled it up again. It is a quote from The Gang of Four. It's the design patterns kind of book. It's the canonical book for design patterns. And the quote says, because inheritance exposes a subclass to details of its parents' implementation, it's often said that inheritance breaks encapsulation. And I just think that's so funny. It's like, you know, the whole idea of like objects is supposed to encapsulate. It's all about encapsulation. And it's like just the fact that you have inheritance means you have, uh, you're breaking encapsulation. So anyway, it's just a fun quote. Nice. Um, I'm going to jump in here with uh, uh, kind of a longish pick. Um, and essentially what it is, is uh, I've been working on kind of a side project for devchat.tv and I think I'm ready to come to light with it. Um, but I need a little bit of help. So what I'm offering is I'm offering people essentially um, coaching in exchange for help. And so um, if you go to github.com, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's github.com slash cmaxw slash um, devchat dash 11 D. And, uh, what that is, is I am working on transitioning devchat.tv off of WordPress. WordPress has just gotten to the point where it's just really, really difficult to maintain. And, um, anyway, what I'm offering people is if you will go in and, um, you have to listen to the podcast audio and then you will tag five episodes for me in a pull request. So, you know, just whatever topics are relevant for it. Um, I'm also looking for tags around things like testing um, new programmers. If it's a, an episode that's really, really uh, good for new programmers, um, like Elixir basics or Ruby basics or JavaScript basics or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm looking for st stuff like that too. Um, careers is another one, you know, that probably don't fall directly under say Elixir. And so if you're, if you're working on um, tagging those, if you send me a pull request with five episodes tagged, um, I would claim them in an issue on the GitHub repo. And the reason for that is just that then if I get two pull requests for the same episode, um, I can, you know, I can make a call and say, hey, they claimed it first. So, you know, then people can kind of stake their claim on their area. Anyway, for every five episodes you do this for, um, I'll do an hour of coaching with you. So... Um, I get people asking me career questions or Ruby questions or JavaScript questions or questions about different frameworks or things like that. And so um, if you think I can help you out, I will talk to you for an hour. But uh, anyway, this is a way to do that uh, without having to pay my exorbitant fees for coaching. So um, anyway, this will really help me kind of get the rest of the site together. 
and uh, I do appreciate the help. So uh, yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And like I said, I, I appreciate the help. Um, I may do the same kind of thing for show notes because uh, some of the episodes do not have uh, show notes on them. And so uh, I may need to go back and have people fill those in too. So yeah, anyway, um, let, let's start out with the tagging though because the tagging helps me organize things so people can easily find episodes that are applicable to what they're doing. So anyway, that's my pick. I'm not going to take too much more time talking about other, other stuff. Uh, Tiago, what are your picks? I mean, can I pick a book or yeah. should I pick something specific? So I like the last book I read, it's, it doesn't have to be crazy at work from Basecamp. I'm a big fan of them. Um, and I really, I mean, I think everyone should read it, especially if you work in technology. Uh, because um, from my experience, people in technology tend to work many, many hours uh, during the night. I mean, having not a healthy lifestyle and so on. And this book really, uh, it's really interesting. You can have small, small chapters and all of them are relevant. Some of them, I don't agree 100% with, with all of them, but most of them I do. And it's, it's a great, great book again from Basecamp. It's the guys about like remote and, and so on. And I think this is the best book so far from them. It's fast, it's easy to read, and you can read small stories one every day. And uh, for us, it's really, a, or even for me, it's something I really try to, to follow many of their, of their advices. And they, are, they have been around, uh, I don't know, 20 years. They, are, they belong to the core team of Ruby on Rails, so I have a, a big, big uh, respect for, for them and for their, the knowledge they, they share. Cool. Um, if people want to find you online, where do they go? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, uh, with TMP Duarte. Funny enough, uh, TMP is not temporary. It's just my name. But when I created the handles uh, for Gmail, I was not in the tech faculty or in the engineering faculty. So I thought it was okay. T from Tiago, M from Miguel. P from Pereira and then Duarte. And I thought it was funny. And when I got into the IT uh, faculty, engineering faculty, people started mocking me because TMP is usually for temporary stuff. And, uh, but I, I, I think it's funny. I kept it and I use it on, on Twitter, on GitHub, on LinkedIn. I will share with you guys the links uh, if you want. And that's where I most end. I abandoned Facebook altogether um, since they changed their algorithm for showing what, do you, what they think you want to see instead of showing uh, by, by, by timeline. And since then, I abandoned Facebook, so I'm not there. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me here. And hope to talk with you guys again or any of our <laughs> Elixir developers, probably. Yep, we appreciate you coming. All right, Confirm. folks, we'll wrap it up, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.